0: It's nice to have
1: money, but um, that stuff comes if you you put in your time and you do everything with as much nobility as you can in this crazy, whacked-out world.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz very very happy to be here very excited about today's show with my guest Bob Saget and before we get started I just want to thank you guys so much for all of your support I'll never stop saying it you guys make this show what it is today and it's all about you it's all because of you and I'm so grateful to all of you thank you so much and as I always do I look at my guest and I think about what I'm gonna say and today's no exception. And when I think about Bob Saget, I think about so many different things. And the biggest thing I think about is the fact that this guy does everything. This guy does stand-up comedy. He does musical comedy. With one of his hour specials being nominated for a Grammy. He directs television. He directs film. He's a host who's hosted God knows how many hundreds of episodes of television. He's a sitcom actor who's been in hundreds of episodes of half-hour comedies. He's a dramatic actor. He's a guy who's done off-Broadway and on-Broadway plays that have been nominated and won Tony Awards. He's a guy who's written a book that's been on the New York Times bestseller list. A guy who just recently now produced, directed, and starred in his own feature film that he's been working on for seven years. He's 61 years old and he's still now working on his next hour special. This past week, he did three different things from a guest shot on a Netflix television special to Fuller House to the premiere of his movie. It's incredible. And not only that, one thing along with all of these things that is truly, truly incredible is the fact that he suffered bone-crushing tragedies. He's lost two sisters, tragically. Yet Bob always figures out a way to be generous and kind and giving. Does a benefit every year for scleroderma, which one of his sisters passed away from and has raised millions and millions of dollars for the charity. I can't even begin to tell you what Bob is like as a person, but the only way to describe him is somebody who wears his heart on his sleeve, always cares about what you think, how you feel, always comes up to you and asks you how you're doing, before asking about anything that he's doing. He truly cares and is genuinely excited about the world of comedy and how it translates into so many different areas of the business. And I can only let you know that if you can figure out a way to not only use every skill set you have and put 100% towards each one and follow through on each one to success, but also be able to deal with the tragedies that our world and this life throws upon us and still drive forward your personal life and your professional life in a positive way, I can guarantee you, if you can figure out how to do that, you'll have a chance at the kind of career
1: Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this.
0: Tell me the first time somebody said something to you that you respected about your stand-up and it hurt you. And conversely, tell our audience the first time a genius came up to you unexpectedly and said, Holy shit, Bob, that's something really special. Wow, that's really nice. Um,
1: Well, the one that really hurt me... Well, Rodney was a, f- a good friend. So I met Rodney when I was twenty-four, twenty-three, and he came into the comedy store in La Jolla, and I've been working there. And he said to me, uh, "You're funny, man. I dig you. You got a you got a smart head. You you're fucked." He said, "You got a Jewish head that never stops thinking. You're never going to be happy." <laughs> and I was thinking, "Oh, oh no." This is this doesn't sound positive, (laughs) but he was telling me that I was funny. He was looking at himself when he was my age and that the mind doesn't stop. And that's an accuracy. The mind doesn't stop. You know, you that's that old joke with a comedian. You you, you know, the refrigerator light goes on and they do 10 minutes. and (laughs) And that's that's just the truth. I mean, you could wake me up out of bed at four in the morning and drop me boots on the ground and I could do a show. You know, um, so that kind of kind of hurt me because it felt like a life curse, but it also felt like a compliment. Um, I think one of the times I was really hurt was by Mitzi at the comedy store. Mitzi Shore. And she was a person that helped me tremendously. So she put me on at the comedy store in the beginning. And um, then there was a strike. Because my friend Steve LeBetkin jumped off the Hyatt and hit the ramp of the Comedy Store, and I was there that night, um, and I didn't—I didn't cross the picket line. And I think she was mad at me. I didn't cross the picket line uh, because I don't cross picket lines. I was—I'm a union kid, and I don't—I don't. I don't what, what are you going to do? There's a bunch of comedians outside with signs. You're going to cross that? Um, And I had loyalty to her because she was so good to me. She put me on a college tour. I was making like, I don't know, a grand, a weekend, you know, going out with two comedians, Jeff DeHart and Fred Raker and playing colleges. And uh, so, you know, I had living in a single apartment in my early 20s. And then I was working at the Dunes in Vegas and... Uh, she would do five comedians, so Sam Kennison would close it, and and I introduced Sam to Mitzi. I had him; I was there for his first spot, and Roseanne would close it, or whoever was of, of of consequence would be the the big closing act, and then in between would be, you know, Steve Odekirk and myself and whoever her favorites were at the time. Mike Binder, Argus Hamilton would also often host it. And then one night I was there, and I went on third sweet spot at the Dunes in Vegas, and I had a bad set. Nothing you can say about it. I Bad set, nervous, flop sweat. And then Mitzi backstage said, you've lost it. You're not funny anymore. And told me that I was just done. Told me I wasn't funny anymore. Uh, and so that was pretty pretty hard. I I must have been like 25, 26 and then I got a Richard Pryor movie called Critical Condition and uh, all of a sudden I was funny again cuz I was hanging out with Richard so then I started getting spots more. But I always worked everywhere. I mean, I didn't matter cuz I had an act that could be if I had to put the guitar on, it would be like a strap on, you know. I'd be ready to pleasure anyone. One of the biggest compliments I ever got I was about to open on Broadway in The Drowsy Chaperone, and Mike Nichols, the great director, who I looked up to a lot, he he directed people, you have to tell people, I guess, but he directed The Graduate, and and then he had a 50-year span of movies and directed Closer. You know, I mean, this is a man who's 80 years old directing Closer, this, you know, intense, rough relationship movie. And The Birdcage, I mean, just crazy talent and also directed who's afraid of Virginia Wolf with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor when he was like 26 so the the compliment that I got from someone that I thought was a genius which was Mike Nichols is I was sitting just sitting waiting for a a show to open on a Monday night I don't remember what show it was but Monday nights was the night that we were off but they would have a special preview for the theater community uh to come out to an opening and Mike Nichols just walks up to me, and grabs me by the shoulders, and says, "You know what a great actor you are, don't you?" I said, "What? Well, well, uh, it's So nice to meet you. I'm, I'm, and I'd met him before, but I forgot because I'd known Diane Sawyer because I was on a CBS morning news thing. And he said, "I said, I, I don't. I I love acting." He said, "You're a great actor. I've seen you act. You're a great actor. You need to know it. You need to start knowing that." I went, "Yeah, yes." yes uh mr nichols um and then i have the great fortune of being friends with norman lear now norman lear is you know the obi-wan kenobi uh for me in my life there, and a lot of people's lives another
0: great interview here as well i had a great time with him there's nothing there is no one as. i mean he's
1: one of the greatest people i'll ever know in my entire life and uh I get to have the privilege of going up and we sing songs every few months, the cigar night at his house and we all, gets musicians and we all play music and just make him laugh. And we all sing and dine. And um, he is a person that called me up when I'd written this book, Dirty Daddy. And he called me and he said, I, I, uh, I read your book and I wanted you to know, and this was kind of out of nowhere. I mean, I'd talked to him once before this was, a few years ago. Um, And he he said, I want you to know that I read your book and it's very good and very funny, but I think uh, your next book shouldn't be funny at all. You should do something completely serious because you're you're a very deep person and you have a lot to say. So you should write a book with no humor. And I said, so I'm not funny? (laughs) You know, right to the negative. But those kind of things... uh, Mold a man, or or a woman, or can mold a man to become a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but but he he
0: uh, he, he made me want to do more uh, serious work. So take me back to where you grew up, the family dynamic, and who was funny, who wasn't funny, and what was your first influence of getting into this business? Um, I was in. I was born in Philadelphia, but then about five
1: years old, four or five. I don't know. My parents don't ever—they never told me uh, the—they haven't told me recently anything because they've been gone for a few years. But um, my dad was with Food Fair Pantry Pride Supermarkets, so he was a a meat executive. So he had to move from town to town like a Navy brat. I was in Norfolk, Virginia, so I grew up there. And it was kind of messed up. There was— I had some friends I was a, a Jewish kid I had uh, the the religion uh, chose me I didn't uh, you know at five I didn't decide which religion I was going to go with um, and there weren't a lot of Jewish people um, around me at school and so I, I faced a lot of anti-Semitism which was really strange kids would throw rocks at my head and call me a Jew and stuff and I collected the rocks and I sold them at the market,
0: <laughs> but I, but it was it was it was, was a lot of persecution, you know. But then you go to Temple University and that's not exactly the haven for Jews. Well, it actually
1: was. I mean, it was it was, it was a huge uh, black population and a huge um, working class white Philly, you know hey you want a cheesesteak and I, I i do a lot for temple when i can i i i love the school it was wonderful for me and i think it's. and they've really done some remarkable things with the school that have really upgraded the education there as well so um but back to virginia i think my dad again his brothers were also incredibly funny so here i am i'm like i don't know how old i was 7 and i'm up I'm living in Norfolk, Virginia. We go to Philadelphia to visit one of my uncles. And his name was Uncle Manny. And he died of a double heart attack because his wife ate his heart out, basically. <laughs> and he smoked like six packs of cigarettes a day. So he got me to lie down on the floor. And he... But it, this is going to sound terrible, what I'm going to say. I haven't told this to anybody ever. And he would he say, okay, lay there. Don't move. like a, Like in the Army, you know? lay there now take your pants off but it wasn't sexual it was like i'm gonna put you i'm gonna embarrass you in front of everybody but that sounds like abusive doesn't it yeah but and i wouldn't do especially it. if you don't wear underwear no i never wore underwear because just in case my uncle wanted to tap that <laughs> but uh because i was always inviting it i was a kid that wanted to be the pedophile i mean i wanted to be the victim <laughs> See, that's not funny. That's terrible. Because, But we know the reason I'm saying that is because it's the worst thing that exists that people could possibly do. He would say, take your pants off. And I'd go, no. But I was, I said, okay, just lay there then. So I would lay there and for a half hour I would just lay on the floor and not move. And I thought it was hilarious. I just found it really funny because he was just giving me shit. And his own son didn't find it funny, and his family didn't find it funny. And my dad didn't say, hey, Manny, leave him alone. They were four brothers, so they acted like bullies. You know, they acted like just military kind of guys. Um, And so I kind of looked up to him, and he never touched me, so that's good. The other influence was my Uncle Sammy. He was a singer, he wanted to be a singer, and he died at 37. And he sang. He went out a little bit with Kay Kaiser, and um, it was a band leader. Mike Douglas also went out with Kay Kaiser, not and toured. we well, not not went out when I say went out. It's not like Tinder. But uh, but my uncle Sammy died playing tennis at 37, and I idolized him. He w- he just wanted to sing and entertain people. He was kind of like a uh, Jack Jones. There was a singer Jack Jones, which was like. Kind of like a, a poor man's Tom Jones. because <laughs> Jack Jones. I'll be I'll be Jack Jones. But you know, there's only one Tom Jones, you know. So it's it's um yeah, there was there was no happy childhood. I mean my friends would go to camp and I would mow lawns, you know. Um I didn't even know whose lawns, I would just mow strangers' lawns. I didn't even get paid.
0: I would just go around mowing lawns. (laughs) They called me the mower. (laughs) So what was your first break in show business?
1: Well, that happened in Philadelphia. There was a club called Grandma Minnies. And the club owner would, and Murray Langston, the unknown comic, Mm -hmm. was a guy, was the first headliner that I'd seen.
0: Did I you was, see him as Murray Langston? As the um, unknown
1: comic, and then he would go I mean, with the bag, and then at the end, and now my impression of an asshole, and he took the bag off and he would make a face. And I recognized him from the Sonny and Chair show because he was one of the company players. He was really good on that show. And we were kind of friendly after that, years later in LA, but I was 17 when I saw this. And the owner of the club, you'll love this, he would the cover charge. I was listening to him charging people when they came in. He would charge them more according to... More or less depending on how they were dressed. So if they had money, he would be like 30 bucks. If they had no money, it would be like 10 bucks. If they looked like poor kids, he would just make up the cover, which was kind of nice, but kind of assholey. But um, so WMMR was a big radio station in Philly, and they had a radio contest, and I heard it on the radio... And I had just seen this Murray Langston, uh, the unknown comic, and I entered the radio contest. And I did one of the comedy songs that I've been doing, and it was a song called Bondage. I was a 17-year-old kid singing a song about bondage. Good, clean, fun, it's bondage for everyone. Masochists and sadists unite one and all. Bondage is the rage. Come on, let's have a ball. That was the lyrics. And they were that funny as quiet as it is right now <laughs> and i won the radio contest i i freaking won it so i got 500 dollars, and i was on the radio on mmr they recorded it and played it back and then that was one of the songs that i would go up to new york and do a catch rising star and belzer was one of my first mcs richard belzer mm-hmm. and he would go like there you go 17 year old kid singing about bondage <laughs> That's just what we need. Someone like, you know, whatever. Um, I love Richard. I mean, you know, there's comedians that it's really weird that time has passed and everybody's gotten older because I was this young kid looking up to all these guys. And here I am now watching myself in every other documentary about comedians that are passed away or talking about them in an homage fashion. But usually it's they're deceased and I'm kind of a go-to interview, but I don't want to do them. I don't want to be in them, but, oh, my God, he was a friend of mine. I have to be in it. I have no choice. I have to give my side of the story, or I have to say how brilliant he was, or, or whatever. So it's. Uh, I think I'm in 10 documentaries right now about comedians. I hope there's never one about me.
0: Your first stand-up break on television. First stand-up break, simple, make me laugh. Make Me Laugh, for those of you who don't know, was a show that has come around three different times in the last 30 years. And, and it was never as good as it was originally. Bobby Van
1: was the host. He had been a singer and a really nice guy. And um, I was just watching it. There's a clip of Gary Shanling on it in the, uh, the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling that Judd made. Um, and Gary was on Make Me Laugh. I'd been on Make Me Laugh three separate weeks uh, so it was five days of show. So I did fifteen days of make me laugh. I could have shot Benjamin, my movie, <laughs> in that amount of time, and Bruce Baum, Bruce Babyman Baum, of course. And he would uh, look. Yeah, he even got a cookie. You know, <laughs> and he would dip, pour milk all over himself, yeah. and dip the cookie in milk, and and he was a friend, and and he he is still. And he would uh, he talked to the talent coordinator and um, she put me on make me laugh. They saw me at the comedy store and they booked me for three weeks on there and that was the thing that started I'd go to Cleveland, I'd go to Pittsburgh I'd go to Detroit and uh, that show was the reason I you know people loved the young comedians that were coming up your first real stand-up appearance on television. That was Norm Crosby's comedy shop. And he would just have everybody on. And so it was one after another. And he was the host, and he was wonderful. It was Norm Crosby,
0: legendary, wonderful comedian. Bernie Brillstein's first client, yeah, Norm Bernie Crosby. Bernie Brillstein, the greatest manager of all time, I was also him. your manager with Brad uh, when they got together. Yep. I loved Bernie very, very much, very much. And
1: Bernie, um, his first client was Norm Crosby, and his second was Jim Henson. And That's
0: right. uh He produced Hee Haw. I mean, it's pretty crazy. Bernie Uh, Brillstein told me at a breakfast about a year before he died, I asked him who he represented that were geniuses. And he said, I've only represented one genius. And I said, Lorne? No. Gilda? No. I said, well, who is Belushi? No. Jim Henson. Right. It just occurred to me where you first heard don't spend your own money on anything.
1: Bernie always said that.
0: Incredible. Bernie said never spend your own money
1: and Bernie got divorced like four times. <laughs> Bernie gambled his money away like four times. He went I went broke. I you know, I got it all back.
0: He inspired me cuz his first book he was explaining how he was 3 million dollars in debt to the IRS in this book. And he's still operating his company and nobody knows, clients don't know he's three million in debt and he's just still going because he knows that he's going to make it and it doesn't matter what the adversity is. So tell me the first thing that happened in your career where you went out, like you walked through a casino or a mall and it's like, oh, my God, I can't get out of this place. People are stopping me left and right. What was the thing that really... Not for shoplifting, right? Not for shoplifting. The thing that (laughs) Um, really, really changed your life forever.
1: That's a hard one. I can't remember any specific thing. When, when When I raised in the zeitgeist was when America's Funniest Home Videos was number one and Full House was like number four or number seven at the same time. So I had two shows on TV all comedians would come up and go give me one of your shows Saget you know
0: which no one was allowed to have two shows I don't well, even know people how you people put did it. it
1: Nancy Walker did it you know there Nancy a couple- Walker was an actress <laughs> I think it's when those shows I'll tell you when it was in the in the biggest scale that meant the most um I'd been asked to go to um I'm trying to remember where we were Minneapolis I believe And um, uh, the Shriver family had asked me to come there for the Special Olympics. And it was televised on ABC. And I had just started Full House. And I don't think the video show had come on yet. And it was just one season of Full House. So I wasn't getting recognized as a stand-up once in a while from different appearances on shows. But um, this was the most meaningful because a lot of the special challenged adults uh, were fans of Full House and a lot of the kids as well. So I was, um, and it was a lot of it was being filmed. It was really interesting, but they put you in situations where you were surrounded by fans, but it was organic. It was people going, I love you. I love that show. You know, you're the dad. You're the dad on that show. You're the dad. So I think that's the first time that I I felt it on a large scale and I was the most honored because, as you know, uh, people that are mentally challenged um, are often the best people that exist on this planet. There's nothing but love coming out of them. So I was getting nothing but love. Um, and then, then that turned around <laughs> not for the next 20 years. I had a story in my book, Dirty Daddy, about um, meeting Edward James Almost at the uh, inauguration for Gray Davis, who got impeached, who was for a minute the governor of California. That's what he was, right? Mm -hmm. So um, this is like very interesting. And Edward James Almost said to me, and if you don't remember, he's from Miami Vice. He's a really good actor. I mean, he's a fascinating man. Um, and he said, it takes 10 years to get a career started. And then it takes 10 years.
0: Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind, all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best In this crazy entertainment industry, I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one on one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to BarryCats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day instead of listening to this podcast you'll be interviewed on it here's to get that
1: job and then it takes 10 years to do that job and then when that job goes away it takes 10 years that you fall out of favor and then it takes 10 years for people to want you back and then i realized that Edward James almost was 120 years old. (laughs) Because the math just doesn't add up. I mean, basically he's telling me it's going to take me 70 years to get into some place where I'm comfortable. But I think he might be right. Maybe at 70 I'll be the most comfortable.
0: But one of the things that I always respected about you is that you went through this time, I believe it was 11 years, where things were not going the way you wanted them to go. Right. And The manager-client relationship is a very difficult one, but you always stayed even when people in the company, it could be argued, were moving forward. Hey, that's my friend. He's doing this. Then you're one year, three years, five years, seven years, yet you still kept the relationship strong. I was always making a living. Like when the video show ended,
1: I directed for four years. That's what I wanted to do. I'd been on camera so much. I was self-loathing. I wasn't myself on the shows. I didn't understand how great it was to have two top 10 shows, to have family-oriented shows. Um, You really didn't understand. I didn't understand. I knew what it was to make a lot of money and to do shows that a lot of people loved but then i would think to myself but i don't feel funny i don't feel like i'm being funny but there was it, i was stupid because knowing what i know now i would know how to host a blooper show now you know but when i was hosting america's funniest home videos i had to feed the beast and you couldn't say anything you know and no one gets an emmy nomination for hosting those amazing animals you know um but now they do <laughs> now, now now there is a category for reality <laughs> show host or whatever but I, I, I did appreciate it. So it's not like I wasn't appreciative. It's just that I wanted to be funnier. But I stayed with my first manager, Brad Gray. And then... The late um, Brad Gray. Yeah, we lost him last year, which was uh, really tragic. Uh, very close with his family. His, his kids are my kids. His daughter's my goddaughter. Uh, my children and his children grew up together. We vacationed together. Um, we both got kind of divorced together from the same woman too. We were very <laughs> close, but, but what happened was, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sad when you lose your friends young and he, he and he was 59 and, um, but I stayed with the company. I had Ray Rio
0: then Ray Rio left the business and, and you Rio still stayed with the company. East, we're
1: still friends, we stay in touch and Michael Price, who went off on his own and he's incredibly successful with wonderful clients like uh, BJ Novak and Danny Chun and but I stayed still with with Brillstein Entertainment Partners, which was Brillstein Gray at one time
0: for a long time. even when one of your best friends, Gary Shandling sued Brad Gray, you still stayed. I did and that was um that was because I loved
1: uh Brad and I loved Gary and it was uh it's in it's in the documentary it's very painful for me um it's it's very hard for me it's one of the albatrosses in my life um so what's interesting is when Gary sued Brad um I was I had just gotten my divorce papers served to me so I was going through a divorce while, in effect, they were going through a divorce. And um, I just wanted to communicate with Gary, and I tried. And there was a lot of shit going on that I didn't know about. And then some stuff that I did know about, and there's many different viewpoints on it. And there's there's negatives, and nothing nothing good came out of it except pain uh, for everybody, Um and it was uh, really unfortunate, and I wish life was different. But I stayed friends with Brad until the moment he passed away. Um, and and I got to have some reconciliation with Gary as well over the years. I would see Gary. There was one time I ran into him, and I, I don't think I talked about this in the, the Judd Apatow documentary about Gary. It really is... It's it's beautiful. I mean, he made a beautiful homage to the guy. He really did. And Gary did have an incredible comedic mind, obviously, incredibly funny, but complicated and and, and hurt just like all of us. And I was hurt, and he was hurt by me, and I was hurt by him. And, um, and I'd been hurt by him years before the lawsuit. Um, we, long friendships, 15 years of friendship, there's going to be hurt. Um, and comedians, you know, there's going to be falling in and out, but there was, um, just one point I just went up to him and said, I've got, I want to come over your house. He said, well, why? I said, because I have love for you. I, I, and he said, I understand that. And then he got teared up and I got teared up and it's like, we still loved each other. Um, and I'll always love him. And I'll always love Brad. I mean, Brad, for me, was did more for my family uh, and and as a friend. And um, But th- my relationship with Brad was completely different than Gary's relationship with Brad. And um, it's just, you know, it's all over now. That's all past now. And what, what Judd just did was commemorate and tribute to Gary and... And I have a, a love in my heart, and I have a lot of love in my heart for Brad and his kids. I mean, his kids—that's you know—he's got four kids, so they're 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 my kids, you know. Um, but that's that's showbiz stuff. But it becomes you know public when people ask because. I mean, there's an HBO documentary on right now, <laughs> you know, so it's showbiz, be- personal
0: people's lives become other people's entertainment. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names of some people. I just want you to tell me what comes to your mind because you know everybody and you've met everybody and I'm sure there's a tidbit or a word or a sentence or a little story that might be inspirational along the way. Okay. Greg Giraldo.
1: I love Greg Giraldo um the only person on my comedy central roast that I was afraid of um he starts to think I did not understand what roasting was really I didn't know that I was
0: gonna be my feelings were gonna be hurt <laughs> that I was actually gonna meanwhile, have my meanwhile it was the highest rated television program that night except for the Olympics yes it was it, it was a it was a big deal
1: and it was a really fun roast and I had friends which is not the case of a lot of Rose. i had john stamos was the roast master and i mean literally norm mcdonald uh jeff ross all all my buddies were were doing it except love just kidding but um <laughs> greg giraldo i did not know yet and he came out and i knew who, how, what a killer he was and how great he was at this and he said uh, a comment about me he said you look like the vlasic pickle stork with that <laughs> beaky little nose and those granny glasses." And I my feelings got hurt. Um and then right after he was done, the stage manager came over and uh he was told by uh the by the producer Joel Gallon. Joel Gallon, uh, tell Bob to look like he's having fun. But they didn't know it. It came over the PA system. <laughs> so the whole audience heard it. Um so I started to look like I was having more fun. But I became friendly with Greg after that and we were gonna hang out and then uh It's just real sad that we've lost him. He was the sweetest and funniest shit guy. And he he had a hell of a career ahead of him. Um, And I just feel bad for his family that he's gone.
0: Ellen DeGeneres.
1: Ellen DeGeneres, I met when she was 19. And she was opening for me at Clyde's Comedy Corner in New Orleans. And there was nobody in the audience nobody knew who i was Ellen was opening we worked i think two weeks together i really liked her we got along really well i thought she had a crush on me uh and then we went to go see the flying chippewandas who were the neville brothers and she took me to go see them and then all of a sudden she had like a girlfriend with her and i didn't know i still thought she liked me and just wanted me to meet her girlfriend so i never really figured any of that out but I, I, I think I had a crush on her that week. I was, very, I was single. My girlfriend at the time had decided to have another boyfriend for a while, and then we got married years later. The story gets more boring. But what happened was in New Orleans, uh, we were in the window because it was like you would always have to look in the window and see if there's anybody playing. So if no one was in the house, no one except waitresses, we had to be on stage. So Ellen would do a 20-minute set. I would do an hour set. For nobody, just the club owner. It was uh, it was pretty upsetting. Entourage, Entourage was a fun show to go play on, and Doug Allen I had known for years. He had seen my stand up. The creator
0: sweet. and showrunner. He just knew
1: this diabolical voice of mine, and decided to write it as the uh, the devil side of of my being. And um, I didn't think I was like that character, you know. Until it was pointed out to me by any woman I ever dated,
0: <laughs> John Stamos.
1: John Stamos is my brother. Um, he is our relationship is very deep, and um, we're truly brothers, probably as much as brothers bl- related by blood. Um, I had no brother, I had two sisters. He has two sisters um we're having dinner tomorrow night we text each other you know i'm about to go on stage and play kokomo you know and i'm about to go on stage and and i don't know i got some new jokes about you but we we uh we're very lucky to have each other in each other's lives we've been there for each other a lot
0: sarah silverman
1: i love sarah silverman so much she she's one of my favorite uh comedians on the earth because she's able to get across some of the most poignant things in the world done with the most love and the most sincerity. And that makes it all the more funny. We did a gig once um, where we played, I think it was uh, University of Boston. I'm not 100% sure. And um, we worked together. She went on, then I went on, and then we went back to the hotel. And I had a girlfriend at the time who I don't think was happy that Sarah and I were <laughs> gloating over each other. How amazing I thought she was, and she was telling me, "No, no, you're, you're amazing." And she's just adorable and and a, and a a treasure. Louis C.K. Louis C.K. It's been very complicated. Um, you know, he's admitted he's made a lot of mistakes, and 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 um, it's not something I'm capable of doing unless someone paid me and it was done in imax (laughs) um an incredibly brilliant comedian everything everybody knows there's nothing i could say that people wouldn't know and i'm hoping and and i think it'll be interesting to see what he's learned and and how he grows and hopefully helps people and himself through what he's done um because people everyone has a right to be forgiven um everyone also has a right to not be abused so there's a a double-edged thing but he's a very as far as comedy goes um he's he's an icon and so, um, I've always liked him. I I I didn't know about this stuff, and I always thought he was hilarious. And then things happened that changed people's opinions, and and we'll see what time will do. I, he's he's a he's a smart man, uh, obviously. So we'll we'll see what happens. I I do I feel bad for. Everybody. I feel bad for someone that has made mistakes and been sick enough to make those mistakes. And I feel bad for the people that were abused, that that have been uh, treated in a bad manner and and in a disrespectful and and upsetting manner. Um, I also, I'd like to see things work out.
0: Richard Pryor. Well, Richard
1: Pryor was one of the biggest influences in my life. So I am very fortunate to have gotten to know him. Um, I was at the comedy store a lot. And I was hosting a bunch in the main room and stuff. And I'd bring Richard out. And one night uh, I got bumped uh, because Richard's coming in. You can't go on. So Richard went on and then he sees me backstage. He goes, are you going on? And I went, no, no, uh, they're going to bring you up. And then he realized right away, realized that I was getting bumped because of him. And he said, when I'm done, you want to come out and see my Testarossa? And I didn't know what a Testarossa was. You know, I had a dollar and he, and the show's over and he, he, he does this crazy, bring down the house, you know, 20 minutes. And then he, Maybe 35. He, he, I don't think he did 20 minutes ever. And he and he took me outside. He showed me the car and how the doors open. He says, you want to get in? I said, no, I'm okay. He said, it's a quarter of a million dollars. I don't know what the fuck it does. <laughs> and then um, I was fortunate enough to get in a movie. I got cast in a movie called Critical Condition. And uh, I spent three weeks with him. Did he have something to do with you getting cast? No. It was uh, Michael had the director... And a friend of mine, Margie Simpkin, the casting director, she's my friend now, but she wasn't then. And she actually cast a movie I made called For Hope that I directed about uh, a character Dana Delaney played based on my sister with scleroderma. And so Margie is a big part of my life. And, and um, or Marjorie, some people call her. But Michael Apted directed Coal Miner's Daughter, and he cast me. And so all of a sudden I was with Joe Montagna and Rachel Tickerton and Randall Tex Cobb and Rebound Blades and Blades and a lot of great actors and in High Point, North Carolina, the furniture capital of the world. So did Richard know you were a cast? I, I showed up like- and he was like, he was happy. He was happy that it was me. And then we started to go to dinner and have some laughs. And one night I, he didn't, I didn't think he felt good that day. So we, uh, we didn't um, invite him to dinner and he was mad. He was hurt the next day. And then I realized, Oh, he wants, you're his friend, you know, uh,
0: you're friends with Richard Pryor. And then I... Hey, everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I wanna do it, because I wanna help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever
1: always invited him and then he stopped coming anyway (laughs) but we were like we would film scenes and we couldn't look at each other we were laughing so hard and it was serious stuff it was like a drowned victim coming in from from you know from outside the pier or the hospital that was kind of like ellis island with a hospital on it and he was uh he was he was just special really really special i mean it goes without saying but and I, and I got to know him, and, and I'll always have that treasure.
0: Your proudest moment in show business.
1: One time I was 23, I was playing Carnegie Hall opening for Gino Vanelli. <laughs> <laughs> he went, I just want to stop, and then he did. But um, <laughs> I guess my proudest moment, it happened recently because it, it, it regroups over the years. My proudest moment, I think, is has been at my Scleroderma Research Foundation benefits when my kids are there, and I'm and we've raised a lot of money, and or I'll say I'll go through one of my little sentimental riffs about my sister or just the people affected. It affects mostly women in the prime of their lives, and um. And I go back to my table, and my daughters just hug me and say, you were wonderful, Dad. And my youngest daughter um, is 25, and I had just sent her a copy of my special, the new one. uh, and, And she called me on a Saturday morning and said, Dad, I just have to tell you, I loved your special so much. I'm so proud of you. And, you know, there's nothing more you can ask for in life than having your kid proud of you. And then when you think of the content of the special, it meant that the message of the special outweighed whatever picayune look you want to pick apart with the content. Because the special, I mean, the last thing in the special is I sing a song, we've got to be kind to each other. So I was trying to envelop it with love, of my audience, of people. And I was on Fallon last week, and he he's he said in your special, he said there's a moment at the end where someone goes, we need you, Bob. And I said, uh, well, if you need me, I'll be there for you. It was, kind of, it was like a comedian who thinks he's Batman <laughs> doing R-rated dick jokes. But... To me, when an audience feels that way, when they give you that kind of affection, when you give them solace, when they know you, when they feel like they know you, but hell, you're talking to them like you're doing one-on-one. It's like I'm talking to you right now, but you're talking to a couple thousand people or a couple hundred people or whatever it is. But it, you know that, that kind of uh, affection from an audience, is, as long as it doesn't fall into the creepster Dumpster is all you can ask for as a as a person that puts themselves out there to entertain them. When I used to hear stars like you know Eliza Minnelli, oh my fans, I love my fans, I totally. I mean, I saw Bruce Springsteen's one man show on Broadway, and it's life changing because here you are watching a master do what he does, which couldn't be more organic and couldn't be more coming from a place of who he is. And then I can't do any spoiler alerts because maybe he'll put some of it in his show when he tours again with the with the full band. But it's it's amazing the things he unveils. They're in his book, things that he admits. And that's intimacy with a performer that you're their other. You're the audience is their other person. It's their relationship. Yes, he's got his wife. Yes, I have my fiance He's gonna be my wife. You know, that's your that's your other, that's life. But there's something that happens of me pulling a mic out of a stand for 43 years and and getting to talk to people or put a movie up on a screen that, you know, it's your baby. It's that's different. Stand-up's not your baby. Stand-up is you. A movie is your baby. You made a baby with people, and they could be producers that are your best friends, people that you don't really talk to ever again. But you made a baby together, and here's this thing that will live because unless the you know unless all uh, databases are wiped out. But um, I'm just proud to do what I do, and I, I feel I do feel like I haven't. I'm just starting to get to do what I want on my my own terms. I'm just starting now, which took a long time I think it was like
0: 20 years longer than a lot of guys. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level in show business there are a couple of jobs
1: I wanted that I didn't get you know they they come and go it's when um, you I wrote a pilot last year with a really good producer writer and it wasn't bought and I didn't understand why they didn't get it because frankly they didn't get it. But it's also, in retrospect, how it fueled me to move forward with what's happened in the past two years, the tenor of the the world, it's a good thing it's not on the air because it would have been canceled. They would have made me nine episodes and then it would have been gone because the world changed. And it had more of an, I don't want to say entourage feel, but it was like entourage with a heart. you know. But it was about me um, being a doctor. And I, in retrospect, I'm glad, I mean, we would have just been scrambling to pull the misogyny out of it, but it was not ill intended. It wasn't done to hurt anybody, but it was just who this character was, which is still valid. But that was a big disappointment because I was like, we wrote it. We spent a year on it. You know what that's like. You develop something. There's nothing that's gigantic. You know, when things get canceled, I'm
0: like, oh, "That got canceled." You know, I'm I'm a professional. Final question: What advice would you have for the young person growing up in a small town, moving around, with all the death and all the tragedy and all the outcasts in high school and grade school, and and how do you get to the point where you become a writer, a host, a stand-up? A comedy actor, a dramatic actor, a person who writes books, a person who makes his own movies, who does Broadway. What advice do you have for somebody to get to the kind of level and have the kind of career that you've had? Even if they wanted to be a doctor, even if
1: they wanted to do something to better themselves, they have to work their ass off. They just have to, they have to somehow not want to be famous but want to be really good which is really really hard find something that you love and do it as well as you can do it so if you write stuff you know just take louis anderson's stuff just take that i'm just saying steal it i'm telling the young (laughs) people listening steal louis anderson's stuff just do his stuff (laughs) and use that and go on tv doing louis anderson's material and you will be the talk of the internet. Uh no, I would recommend, you know, talk your voice. Uh guys, girls, aardvarks listening, anybody that wants to move forward. If you want to be a stand-up, you know, come up with original stuff that you think it sets you apart. It could be about your life, it could be about the world it could be it could be a a, a damn hacky guitar act. But just you won't open for me if that's what you're doing. But <laughs> but you know, just it's it's a special thing to be able to be in the arts. And that's how I look at it. It's not being a comic, not being an oh, he's an actor, you know, don't don't listen to him. It's just learning your craft. Learn it and just do it all the time. Just if you're gonna be a stand up, just don't ever not do it. Um but then again, uh In order to be good at it, you have to take time off in order to live life and experience life so that you can then come out again. That's why Dave Chappelle disappears for eight years. It doesn't disappear. He's been doing shows. He was in Ohio doing shows all the time. He would go to New York. He just didn't know it. Um, I went under the radar when I was trying to figure out if I'm going to do stand-up ever again, and then I ended up doing another special. But just... Figure out what you want to write and just start writing it down. And if you're not a writer, perform it. And if you're not a, a stand-up type of person and you have a facility for acting, study and read as much as you possibly can. Or if you're a musician, just do what you're supposed to do. But everybody always, you know, you watch the Oscars and half of it is... is is. You know, I would I, liberal rhetoric, which I'm part of, and you know, I don't, it it can get old if everybody does the same speech, but it's always been consistent. The 50 years of watching Oscars, or what is it, 140 years now of Oscars, and the person looks into the camera and says, "That little kid sitting at home." You know, you're in a cornfield. You're in your own poop. You know, you just ate your brother because you're a cannibalistic family. You can make it. You can get off that sofa that your parents have duct taped you to. And you can, you can go out and you could be standing here one day. Um, the whole thing's not about winning awards. The whole thing is about doing work that affects people. And it's not just for you. It, you're doing it for other people. You're giving something to people. You're giving something to others, and that's that's what I think a lot of people make it all about themselves, and that that's what gets old. That's what gets old with you know Instagram and all the narcissistic stuff that I'm part of. Can't help it because I just adore thinking about myself. <laughs> but but doing it for other people and entertaining other people is uh, is a pretty wonderful thing. Not just Going out there going, I'm gonna get rich, which is it's nice to have money. But um that stuff comes if you do you put in your time and you do everything with as much nobility as you can in this crazy whacked out world.
0: Thank you so much, Bob. You gave
1: me a sandwich and parking.
0: This was amazing. You this were was incredible the best thing today. that's ever happened. Thank you.
1: dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your